Hello, everyone. I am Chris Hyams, CEO of Indeed, and welcome to the next episode of Here to Help. At Indeed, our mission is to help people get jobs. This is what gets us out of bed in the morning and what keeps us up at night. And what powers that mission is our people. Here to Help is a look at how experience, strength, and hope inspires people to want to help others. In the U.S., February is Black History Month, an annual celebration to honor the contribution and sacrifices of Black Americans who have shaped our nation and history. My guest today is Jossie Barber, a Global Product Solutions Senior Lead at Indeed and a former Site Operations Lead for Indeed's Black Inclusion Group, or BIG. I am particularly excited to have Jossie join me today. Jossie asks great questions. And for those who are maybe outside Indeed listening to this later, every Here to Help is recorded live with an Indeed audience. And we, at the end, open up for Q&A. Jossie has asked a question at, I think, every single Q&A except for maybe one uh, I have also been doing a live weekly Q&A with the entire company since March of last year, and Jossie has asked a question, I think, at every single one of those as well. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity to ask him some questions today. Jossie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. So let's start where we always start these conversations with uh, a check-in. How are you doing right now? Right now, I'm I'm doing pretty well. Um I think that this past weekend was a great time to think about Black History Month as it just started last week, um, as well as think of how far we've come in the last couple of years. And on, on a personal note, I am starting some very, very well-deserved time off on Thursday, uh, where I will be taking just some time off from work and doing some nice things and unplugging. So I'm doing pretty well in... Uh, you know, in anticipation of that. Fantastic. Well, we have a lot to cover today, but um, why don't we start just with a little bit of uh, explaining your role. So what is a global product solutions senior lead and how do you help people get jobs? Yeah, so within the global product solutions space, we are essentially one of the most important conduits between our frontline sales and client success teams, and uh, the people that make our products go. So our global product commercialization, product managers, uh, et cetera, everyone within our product tech and engineering space. So we are the voice of the people and we're the voice of the people's people. So we really help by focusing on our non-core um, products to help make sure that clients are really filling out their whole strategy so that they not only wait for people to find their jobs, they also can proactively reach out to them. They can communicate um, their messages, why people want to work for them. And so we really make up the whole um, the whole gamut of all of Indeed's products. One of my favorite parts about these Here to Help conversations is uh, learning a little bit more about people's background and their experience and and how different 
career journeys uh, can be. Uh, you have an, an interesting background. You did not start out in, in tech. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you were doing before and how you got here? Yeah, so I have been at Indeed for six years, a little more than six years. So it's been my longest foray in any one company. Um, but before that, uh, my upbringing was really surrounding the area of music and classical music and opera. So I have two degrees. Uh, one is in mu music education. So I was studying to be a music teacher. And uh, that's what I got my bachelor's in. And then I went to grad school uh, at conservatory in Boston. Uh, and I was studying to be an opera singer. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. And everyone told me that I was good at it, that I had talent, but it took me a really long time to figure out that I didn't really like it when I didn't do well at things. And I didn't do the music thing um, because I was you know, trying to get better. I did it because people told me that I was good at it. And then once I got out of grad school and it got hit with the real world of auditions and trying to find work and everything like that, and people told me, you know, you are okay, but you're just not as good as other people. You need to take some more time. And in the music world, my voice type, you know, being a very low bass, they tell you it takes a whole lifetime for your voice to mature. And I just couldn't wait that long to, to get that positive affirmation that I was doing a good job. So I pivoted and then I, I worked, uh, I really found that I wanted to work at companies that had missions. So before Indeed, I worked at an environmental efficiency company that focused specifically in the residential sector. So talked to a lot of homeowners about how to make better choices with their homes and their general makeup. And then luckily, um, a colleague of mine or a former uh, friend from Syracuse worked at Indeed, still works at Indeed. And he told me about this you know, blossoming company. And it was a lot different back in 2015 than it is now. So I'm really happy that I made that jump and made that choice. And, you know, now I've been here for a lot longer than most millennials stay at companies. So we're having this conversation right now during Black History Month. And our Black Inclusion Group has uh, a lot planned, both around celebration, but also around reflection. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what Black History Month means to you. Yeah, so a little bit about you know what the month means to me. It definitely makes me think about the history of Black History Month. Um, you know, it hasn't been around uh, all that long. Um, it first started as Negro History Week and then Negro History Month and then morphed into Black History Month. And my background really does a lot with my importance of Black History Month, you know, coming from a multiracial family um, and growing up in a town that focused really just a lot of resources and conversations around um, civil rights and just general equity. I actually, my, my hometown of Teaneck, New Jersey was the first town in the country to voluntarily integrate their schools. There's been books written about it. So it's been a part of my life for the, you know, pretty much whole time that I have been a human. Whereas most kids were sent to different schools to maybe learn about like religion or maybe even etiquette or those types of things. My, my dad sent me to a school to learn about the culture of Africa. So just the, the knowledge that I had, uh, the realization that I had that I came from a little bit of a different background, it really made me realize that it's important to know 
not just your background, but lots of other people's backgrounds and to celebrate that. So I think of Black History Month really as a celebration of culture and not just one culture because, you know, all of our people that come from, you know, the African diaspora have lots of different cultures mixed with other cultures. And so it's really just a brown celebration of, you know, where we've come from um, and, you know, what we want to be in the future. One of the things that um, I've really come to appreciate getting to know you um, over the years is is your your willingness to talk about complicated things. Um, and so we had a conversation. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but when we were meeting last week and, and prepping for this, you had said that one of your goals for the year was that you wanted to be a guest on Here to Help, but that you had another goal, which is that you also wanted to be a guest again, not during Black History Month. And this is very complex, right? We want to have these conversations and we want to uh, dive into these um, topics that might be uncomfortable for people. And then at the same time, we don't want the only thing that we're talking about to be those issues. Can you, can you talk a little about what you meant by that when you, when you told me that on Friday? Yeah, you know, I, I love talking about my culture. And as a, a very proud Black man, I will always talk about you know, the systems that are in place that don't give us as much opportunities as other groups of people, um, as well as, you know, how much just rich culture we have that we bring from people that might be more recent immigrants. I mean, there's there's just a lot to to unpack. And uh, there's not a lot of time to do that in uh, in one month and uh, in the shortest month of the year. And so... I also know that I am a staunch ally of all marginalized communities. And one thing that that does to me is it, it takes a lot of emotional energy to think about everyone. I'm, a, I'm an inherently empathetic person. And so back in 2020, when people would ask me how I was doing, first off, I, I hated that question um, during that time because it was really, really, really triggering. But now, as I've gotten more into being an ally to all of our different um, inclusion resource groups that indeed, and just thinking about it in general, I think a lot about, well, how do these systems affect not just black people, but women? How do they affect um, you know, immigrants? How do they affect people within the LGBTQ plus community? And it takes a lot out of me to think about these things, but it drives my thirst for knowledge of what these systems do. And so because we're obviously talking about, you know, Black History Month right now, we're going to focus a lot on that. But I also know that, you know, in March is Women's History Month. And, you know, uh, in uh, in June, we're going to celebrate Pride. And, and you know, in uh, September and October, it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be Hispanic, Hispanic Heritage Month. And so, you know, I think that it's important to be that ally that can speak to these things without necessarily draining everyone's emotional um, emotional intelligence bucket of sorts. And so, you know, I think that I do the work that I need to do to understand the plight of all of these people and all of these communities. And I really want to be that person that can speak for those people and ask those questions that those people want to ask, but maybe don't have the energy to do so. Um, and I can only do that with more um, 
more opportunity to speak. It's something that anyone that that knows you or anyone that certainly at Indeed has spent any time with any of our inclusion resource groups that um, that you are a fixture, not just you don't just show up. You're a fixture at so many of them, and um, and in the the sort of generosity in, in creating space and and giving voice to to other people has been really powerful. And I want to I want to get into that, but um, maybe again for folks who are not in Indeed, if we could back up a little bit and and, and talk about the the IRGs at Indeed and and their role. So IRG for folks not in Indeed is Inclusion Resource Group, and you joined uh, Big um, early on and ended up playing a leadership role at uh, at Big. Can you talk a little bit about your experience as as Big was getting up and running and and finding its its footing and um, how you saw your role? Yeah, you know, so I believe, um, and Stacy will probably tell me, um, one of our other leaders in our Black Inclusion Group, if I got this wrong, but uh, Inclusion Resources Resource Group started in late 2016, so about a year after I joined Indeed. And I was just very excited to have a space with my people. Um, you know, uh, it had been a while. You know, I went to a predominantly white institution uh, and then I went to a classically trained conservatory. So it had been a while since I had been around my people, um, really since high school, um, in abundance, I would say. And when I came to Indeed, um, the first you know, my uh, person that referred me was actually on my team, which was really, really good to have. Um, but I had another black person uh, who's no longer at Indeed, but he was on my team and just seeing that. And then the New York office was a lot smaller than it is right now. And I I just happened to run into pretty much all, all of the black people at Indeed that first day. And, um, and my trainer, when I went to Stanford to train, was also black. And so it just sort of, percolated and it got me really thinking about you know our um our population just in general at indeed and then uh, i think maybe seven or eight months after that this was before uh, inclusion resource groups existed i had a lot of thoughts about just the general makeup of my office because i i'd only been to the indeed office and then to the stanford office and so those two offices didn't see a lot of people like me um, in abundance. And I definitely didn't see spaces where we could just be. And I really, really wanted that. So when big started, um, I was very excited to be a part of that. It was pretty small, pretty relaxed. And I just remember thinking that the weight of being me and being in these spaces for so long, since I was really, you know, a young, not even an adult, um, it was just so comfortable. And I didn't ever feel like I had to do any work. And then as more and more inclusion resource groups came about, um, women at Indeed, I Pride, uh, Latinx in Tech, and so on and so forth, I think we're up to 11 or 12, um, and new ones are being created all the time. We have parents and caregivers and all generations um, and uh, international inclusion group. And it really made me think, how can I create a space when I became into leadership at Big? How can I create a space that people will feel comfortable, but that we can also have allies come in and maybe do the first work, the first you know bit of work that they've done in a long time, understanding these other populations that they may not interact with, maybe not in their professional lives, 
maybe not in their personal lives. And, you know, then they can realize and check their privilege and understand all of those things. Because although I am in a marginalized community, I'm only really in one, um, right? As a man, able-bodied, educated, all of those other things. I don't have a disability, anything like that. Um, then I, when I go into these spaces and I am just an ally, although an outspoken one, I want to know, like, I want to learn. I want to know what's going on, but I also want to then go and advocate for those people, especially when they're not around. And uh, I think that the inclusion resource groups have done a great job as they have progressed and as they have, um, you know, grown um, to really create that. Um, and if people don't, maybe they look around their social circles, they look around their professional circles, and they don't really see a lot of diversity within those spaces. Uh, I'm here to tell you that whether you're an internal person and Indian, or you're, you know, looking at this from the outside, those spaces exist. And if they don't, you may have to go and create them. And that's going to be a lot of work. And it's going to take a lot of emotional stress out of you. But it's work that is really good to do. Yeah, I think it's one of the remarkable things about seeing the IRGs develop and grow and and especially since the start of the pandemic the membership in IRGs has has grown pretty much exponentially and i think part of that is that so many people were stuck alone and isolated that they're craving a sense of of belonging um and you know one of the things that that i sort of figured out pretty early on was that for many people their work environment is probably one of the most diverse sort of uh, groups that they're a part of. That that for many people around the world, but certainly in America, where people go to school tends to not be extraordinarily diverse. Um, possibly uh, a, a faith organization or neighborhoods. Um, and yet when people come to work, and especially at a company that has grown like Indeed has now at our size, um, we have we have pretty broad representation of all different types of backgrounds and, and experiences. Um, and that it actually turns out to be an amazing opportunity for people to come with a, an open mind and an open heart and, and, to, and to learn a little bit more. And I think that one of the things, you know, so you mentioned and and as I said, kind of earlier on, you've been uh, an active member in many of these groups, and a, and a lot of what that means, though, is showing up and listening. And you know, we talked about this this last week of uh, checking your own privilege, which I think for for people who want to be allies, and especially people um, like myself who maybe grew up with really no marginalization to to speak of to not just learn how to recognize my own privilege, but then to see people who might have had other barriers to face checking their own privilege is an incredibly powerful thing and and how you've also uh, shown up to give voice to others. So I'd love to talk, I mean, there's so many different things to talk about here, but in particular, early on in the pandemic, um, there was this, um, you know, rise and and I would like to say wave, although it hasn't really gone away of uh, anti-Asian xenophobia and uh, and and violence and other things. And seeing you show up in spaces uh, like that with our 
um, Asian network and and being able to be there and 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 be an ally was incredibly powerful, I think, to me and and a lot of other folks. And so I, I'd love to hear you talk about this. You know how you think of using your voice um, and and what it means to 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 be an ally and how you've approached that. Yeah, well, just for the record, I, I live in New York City, and even though New York City is one of the most diverse cities in the world. Uh, it is also one of the most heavily segregated cities in the world. I've lived in different parts of the city where different representation, um, you know, peaks and, and valleys and all that, all that fun stuff. But because I come from a, a multiracial background, um, you know, my mom is, uh, they're both New Yorkers. So I obviously get that. My mom is Jewish and she's from Staten Island and my dad is black and from Brooklyn and his family all comes from North Carolina. And so I didn't really ever have a choice. I always had to think about more than, you know, one identity. Um, and that's something that a lot of people that come from multiracial backgrounds um, do. Um, it's just part of growing up that way. Um, but one thing I always wanted to, to do is, is take in culture. Um, uh, traveling is, is obviously a big part of that. But for me, I don't really have to travel that far to understand different cultures. Um, you know, I can, I can go and I can uh, buy things from, um, businesses that are owned by people that don't look like me, as well as businesses that are owned by people that do look like me. I can try the cuisine of lots of different places. Um, I can, uh, you know, I can even just go and walk around in, you know, I can go and walk around in little Italy. I can go and walk around in Chinatown. I can, I used to live in East Harlem and just go and listen to languages that I do understand a, a good amount, but are not my, you know, native tongue. And I think part of that is just, that's, that's a privilege that I have, but I think other people don't have that. And if it's not around them, then they don't necessarily feel like they have to seek it out. So if you live in an area that is homogenous and uh, look, everybody looks like you, then you may not think about going and seeing a different part of the town you live in, or even traveling great distances to, uh, to go and find other cultures. And then when other culture is thrust upon you, and that can be, um, you know, ethnicity, uh, anything like that, anything that uh, separates people, then you, because you have not made that choice to go in and learn about that culture, then it feels pressure, feels pressured to be upon you. And you may not like that. Now, I'm, I do not like change, even though I live in a city where it's ever changing. I don't like change, but I do like to put myself in situations where change is thrust upon me, mostly because I'm making the decision to be within those spaces. And when you make the decision to put yourself in those spaces, then you can sort of ease your way into it, right? You can go and you can, you know, especially in a virtual world, you can go and you can be on mute, you can turn your camera off and you can just be, and you can understand maybe some of the challenges that people are having. Um, and then as you continue to get more comfortable and you have those conversations with yourself and recognize whatever privilege you may have, because we all have some, you just have to dig, you might, some people might have to dig a little bit deeper then you might become more like me and, you know, experience things and um, you're more aware of things. And you can say, well, I noticed this happened the other day, specifically around like all the anti-Asian hate that's going on. I mean, when you live in New York, 
you um, you're going to see lots of lots of different people. Um, but when it hits close to home, you know, when the woman was murdered on on the subway, that was a train station that I took every single day going to work. So you're immediately thrust into that space, and you have to come to grips to why that happened and what's the fallout of that. You can't ignore any of that stuff, and. You know, if you, if you want to find other cultures, sometimes you have to go and seek them out. And it's important to do that because then you can, you can think about how your culture intermingles with that culture and then understand some of the systems that might keep you apart. You know, even in a city like, like New York, why are there no other people that maybe look like you or look like a specific ethno group um, in your neighborhood? Why is that? And that question is a big one. And, but one that you might, you know, want to consider. Um, just on a, a quick fact, it's not uh, it's not a mistake that if you ever wanted to go and live in a predominantly black city, and there's not a lot of them in the United States, and if you wanted to live in a larger city, not a small town, but a larger city, that the area income of those cities is at least twenty thousand dollars lower than the uh, median income in the state that they are in. That's not a mistake. So if you want to do that, you might want to acknowledge, well, if I go and live in those cities, I might not be able to make as much or my, my money might not go as far. And you need to ask yourself, you know, why that is and have those conversations first with yourself, then with your, you know, close friends in your own group and then branch it out. If you like this interview and want to hear more, hit subscribe. Catch up on any Here to Help episodes you might have missed, like my conversation with Jan Emanuel Dunev, and get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Jossie Barber after this break. At Indeed, the uh, Black Inclusion Group's theme for Black History Month this year is uh, it's not health and wellness, it's wealth and wellness. And I know that um, in particular, financial literacy is a is a personal passion of yours. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on how we arrived at that theme, what it means and and talk about your your personal interest in this area. Yeah, anybody that's ever talked to me about this knows that my my favorite statistic is, uh, you know, is uh, it's around wealth, right? It's around um, it's around your overall net worth. And in in the United States, um, the average net worth of a white family is about one hundred and sixteen thousand dollars, which is pretty good. You know, that's that's it's good to have that wealth. And the average wealth of a black family is ninety five hundred dollars. And so. We're, you know, as a very, those are those small, are averages. Actually, the medians are even farther apart. Way, way farther apart. The ultra rich definitely skew those, but I like to talk, talk about averages because it at least keeps it into some level of perspective for people. Um, you want, you know, have a conversation with me, or you know, uh, we can talk about that at, at a different time. Um, there's not that many jossies on social media, so just look me up if you don't work it. Indeed. Um, and so I love to talk about that because it makes me think about, you know, what we need to do. And one of the two of the things that have a really big impact on wealth is, um, is, you know, where your family comes from 
And uh, so when we think about the wealth part, financial literacy is really important because there is a lot of information that is communicated and broadcast throughout our communities that keeps us poor. Um, and I don't mean individual people. I mean swaths of people, groups of people, entire cities that keep people poor. And understanding that and getting that knowledge is the first thing that we as a as a black community need to do to then take um, to then take control over our wealth journey, where we know that a lot of other people they maybe just have to start saving or contributing to their retirement accounts or their investment accounts. And they don't have to think about everything that has been done that keeps us away. You know, all of the information that comes out around whenever black people get a little bit of wealth. I mean, it, it, uh, we all know, hopefully a lot of people know about, um, about Tulsa, um, and, and about, uh, black wall street, um, and how that was ripped away from us. But this goes a lot further back to the Freedman savings bank in, um, that was in you know the mid-atlantic um in the late 1800s so right right after the uh the end of slavery that was then just ripped away from people and although it's not as visible now as literally just destroying institutions and businesses and communities and everything like that it's a lot more subtle which is generally how um, oppression continues to be on so when you talk to the school prison pipeline when you when you talk about generally uh, people that go to college um, who are black they don't finish as often as people who are not black and they come out with more student loans um, they typically go to more for-profit universities which typically make people be more in debt there's there's a lot of things we don't have like the most time in the world to uh to to talk about those but and then the other end of that is wellness is just about your general well-being and i know that my family um especially on the black side really really on both sides but especially on the black side they have all dealt with serious um both mental health and physical health just whole body health more towards the late stages of their lives so i have i can count on not my two hands not my hands and toes the amount of people that have diabetes, heart disease, cancer, hypertension, high blood pressure, like so many things that then later on in life, you are not able to take care of yourself. And that depletes whatever funds you might have. So if you ever wanted to save up for something, a lot of the people in our communities, they're saving up to just get through to the end of their life, which then doesn't leave money for um, inheritance. It doesn't leave money to you know bridge that gen that generational wealth gap that we have, and then you're just further and further behind. So understanding all of that is sort of where you have to be. You have to educate yourself on those things. And then all of us can then go and say, okay, how can I then build my wealth? But you have to understand all of that where other people may not have to. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, I think that uh, this question of uh, what is racism Right, which is, uh, it's it's amazing how much of a debate that is. But I, I think the the general misconception is that it's about individual prejudice versus disparate outcomes from systems that uh, essentially assert those those outcomes and 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 keep things that way. And you know, a big big part. Um, and and you know, I, I want to thank you. You know, I've been. Um, 
doing a lot of reading over the last few years in this area, and you had recommended uh, a, a few years ago to me that the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which is, um, I, I would, I guess I'd like to say it's one of the most astonishing books I've read, but then I've read so many other books on other topics that are as profound and deep in, in terms of that. Um, and I, I know that reading is is very important to you and, and you do a whole lot of it. Um, and then at the same time, we're finding ourselves right here in 2022 um, after what in theory could have been, you know, great opportunity for awakening. And we're having these debates about banning books in schools. So um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on sort of reading and, and what it means and, and, and how you might make sense of, of the, you know, what's going on in this country right now with this debate about, about information. Yeah. Um, so my, my intersection of my, um, my ethnicity, so being black and being Jewish, um, there's not a lot of other groups of people that have experienced hate at a level that people that come descend from slaves and then people that descend from uh, especially European, European Jews. And uh, so I, I know about a lot of things related to um, pain and, um, and knowledge. And so generally because books that get banned are around my two identities, and there are obviously there's lots of other books as well. Um, it really, it really just hurts me because it, it's essentially saying that these children, and uh, obviously my background in education makes me think about children often. Um, these children won't be able to learn about me, and if they can't learn about me, then we won't exist. And yeah, we'll continue to exist and, and survive and maybe even thrive. But when you take books away that talk about the Holocaust, you take books away that talk about just general, you know, maybe it's religious persecution, or you take books away that, you know, don't talk about the civil rights movement, or you don't talk about slavery, or then don't talk about just inching on, um, you know, even, even, uh, academic books around, um, you know, the social, social security administration and the like fair housing administration, all of these things, then you're basically taking away the, the choice that people have to choose whatever side of that history that they're going to be on. And the, 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 the shocking thing that it is, is when I look at these districts that do this, now, there may be political leanings and whatnot that sort of sway people to go one way or the other, but oftentimes the districts that do this have very involved parents and guardians and, you know, leaders that say, hey, I don't want my child learning this. So it's not, it's multifaceted because they have choices to teach their children at home generally, right? They can give them extra books. They can give them things to do, which is stuff my family did, my dad did especially. Um, and so they're choosing what they teach their children at home, and then they're also choosing what their schools teach. And then you have the flip-flop of that. You have parents that are good parents that care a lot about their children, but they may not have the time or or just, just, just the mental capacity 
to teach their children at home and influence what their kids learn at school. And those people traditionally, more, more, more so than not, you know, they, they look like me and other, other marginalized communities. So I think what we really need to do is teach our children how to take in information, make informed decisions, and go from there. Because all this talk about indoctrinating our children with these thoughts, I mean, we indoctrinate people that we raise all the time with lots of different thoughts and lots of different opinions and lots of different information, right? People used to always tell me, my mom, that she raised three really great children that were good people and thought empathetically about everything. And, and you know, that's right. But that that in, in itself, and I looked this word up recently just so I could speak to it, that is indoctrination. Um, if, if you're brought up in a, in a, in a household that values you know, the golden rule and treating others the way that you want to be treated, that's indoctrination as well. So why do people get to choose, you know, one type of indoctrination over another? And that, that always sort of, uh, that always gets to me. Um, and so just give, you know, make kids think we don't, we don't do that as much. And if you take books away, then they're, they're not going to think as much. You know, I think, uh, there's probably a lot of different ways to look at it, but, but one way to, to, look at the human condition is that um, pretty much everything that that we do is based on trying to distract ourselves from feeling uncomfortable. Um, and you could sort of rattle off all the different things that you might uh, want to from from small to to societal and very large, but that um, as a as a species, we don't like discomfort. And so much of um, being able to make the world better, requires actually looking at things and talking about things and learning about things that are that are uncomfortable. So I, I'd love to talk about just for for a minute to kind of dive into, you know, last, uh, last, it's now we're 2022, time is, has kind of lost some meaning here. Uh, May, well, starting in, in February uh, of, of 2020, uh, through May and beyond, we had, you know, uh, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, which, and again, none of these are new stories, but because of the time and place and a series of circumstances in COVID and everyone being, whatever happened that happened um, in, the, in the summer of 2020, not only did these issues suddenly become front and center in a global conversation, but they became front and center at work for, I would imagine, almost every other company, but certainly at, at Indeed. Um, and and you were uh, among many of the people who were really showing up um, in these places to to give the space and to have these conversations, and also being very clear about the fact that it was a heavy load, and it wasn't you know he didn't want to say how you're doing every five minutes or explain how all black people were feeling because a lot of people were coming to people like you and, and asking those questions. Can you, can you talk about feeling uncomfortable at work and that experience and, and basically, you know, what, what it was like, but also what we can learn from that and, and how do we, how do we take something and create an environment where, where people have the space to, to, to deal with complicated and difficult and painful situations like this? Yeah. You know, I, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot because, um, especially transitioning out as a being a leader of an inclusion resource group, 
I'm thinking more about my membership and how I want to continue to support the people without leading them. And one of the things that I like to communicate to people is I am uncomfortable probably about 40% of the time just being me. I'm black. I'm really large. And luckily on a virtual screen, that doesn't come off as much. But when I'm out walking my dog or going to the grocery store or anything like that, I just, I generally, I'm a jarring presence. And so I have to acknowledge who I am and what I'm doing within those spaces and know that I am out of the norm. Um, and so I think that oftentimes people don't consider that because they may feel comfortable 90% of the time or, or even 100% of the time because of the company they keep and the company they choose to surround themselves with. And so um, I did a panel last year and one of my panelists, um, somebody asked a question around, what do you think about the idea of bringing your full authentic self to work? And, and they commented and basically said that I don't think anybody should bring their 100% authentic self to work. Now, I always like to say that I'm living my best Jossie, but I also know that if I was totally unhinged and all the barriers were taken down, I'd be a, a lot to deal with. And I'm already kind of a lot to deal with. And so when you think about daily, how many times you are, you put yourself into positions that make you uncomfortable, Let's try and count, do it for a day, do it for a week, do it for a month. And if you don't really find places where you are uncomfortable or where you can recognize that you may have it better than another group that you are surrounding yourself with, then that's something you sort of have to come to yourself. But the more that people do that, the, the better that we're going to be because the more we're going to be able to recognize things that are happening around us that are not right. And just because it's the same thing that we've done forever definitely does not mean we should continue to do those things. Actually, we probably shouldn't. Change is always going to come and you better. it's better to be on the right side of that than on the wrong side. I want to come back to something I said at the at the very start about you asking questions, and you do you you ask great questions, and you ask uh, uh, a lot of questions. And you know, I like asking questions. Obviously, that's why I I, I do this thing here. But um, tell me a little bit about where that came from. Is this something that you were you always a question asker? Asker? Is it something that you feel now is important? How? How did this become part of, of who you are? Yeah, so I'd like to say that I'm a really good student and that I like did all the work that I had to do and read everything that I needed to read and reflected and all that stuff, but I wasn't. I was actually probably just average. And so anytime in school when uh, I would be tasked with something or I needed to you know participate, I would often ask questions, mostly because I did not know the answers to just generally what we were talking about. And so it all sort of started from that. But then I sort of started realize, realizing the kind of information that I wanted to take in. And then I knew that the more information I knew, the more credibility I would have, especially in a professional space. And so the, you know, the only way you can have credibility and trust and rapport with whomever you're working with, whether it's a company or a colleague or anything like that, is by asking questions. and. I know that it's important to ask 
you know, open-ended questions, questions that people will say, oh, you know, that's a really good question. And then in the back of my head, I would say, I know, thank you. It is, it is a very good question. But my questions really morphed in the last couple of years, probably starting around like 2018, 2019, um, when we were growing so exponentially, um, really asking questions of leaders that were going to spark conversation. Maybe conversation with me, but hopefully conversation within the circles of people that can make decisions. And so now I just think about that and in, in, in just in that way. And the more questions I ask, the more people can think about it. And then especially the more I can follow up. So if I ask a tough question and then somebody answers in a way that I don't like, which happens sometimes because when questions come at you, you have no time to prepare. Um, but then I ask it later and I ask it in a different way and I follow up and I you know, have those conversations. And that led to a lot of uncomfortable conversations, especially in 2020, but even through to now in 2022. And so I ask questions because I know it's the right thing to do. And especially because I am a strong presence. I've been in Indeed for a long time. I am comfortable in how I ask questions. And I ask questions for people that won't ask them then. Uh, themselves. And so they'll send me questions. I ask those questions. And sometimes even people try and give me answers. And I say, thank you. But I ask the question because it needs to be asked, not because there's a simple answer to it. One of the things, obviously, as a business, we focus on how we can be more inclusive and hire more inclusively, but also our business is helping other people hire. And we are dedicated to trying to figure out how to how to make hiring more inclusive in general. Um, I guess from from your experience being a, a part of all this, what are some of the things that we and other companies should be doing that we're not doing today? First thing is acknowledging just the facts. The facts that companies, like I can speak to a couple of things, um, companies that have leadership that are more mixed gender-wise have higher profits. They just do. Companies that hire people that have a diverse background, um, maybe they have, maybe they don't have a bachelor's degree, maybe they come from a different area from where you hire before. They bring innovative ideas to the plate. You know, they they can basically say, "This is maybe how I would think about it," and it's different than the way you might think about it. And if you accept those people, then you're going to drive change, and you're also going to be able to um, market. And, and and benefit other populations of customers, possibly, and even countries. And then the final thing is that everybody knows this. It's much harder to keep people than it is to hire people. So companies, you know, and this might, uh, this is an interesting thing coming from Indeed. We want people to continue to try and find their next hires on Indeed. But we also want you, if you're doing good things, or if you're, you know, creating an environment that is that is one that is changing, just shout out from the shout shout it out from the rooftops and say, "This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing what we're doing. Please come and join us so that you can help us." And then the last thing is that we all know it's not enough to have a job. It's not enough to have a job opening. You need to have a potential for a career where someone can grow and contribute 
and be at a company for six, 15, 30 years, but you can't just look at compensation and benefits. It's the whole entire compensation that, that makes, uh, makes up for that. So consider all of those things. It's a lot of work, but you have to do it. Well, as we, uh, uh, as we come to a close, I could keep talking for, uh, for a very long time and we will continue talking in, uh, beyond this, but, um, I like to ask that looking back over the past couple of years and everything that we've been through with the pandemic and, and, and all of the upheaval and change in the world, what, if anything has left you optimistic for the future? I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago, um, right before Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, which we have off, which is great. Um, and I had a conversation with a colleague uh, out of Austin, and um, we were just talking about um, what what their kids were doing in school. And we had a pretty long conversation, maybe about an hour, which is not abnormal for this individual. And I asked him, you know, what uh, what are you planning for MLK Day? And we had just a nice full conversation around, you know, questions you might want to ask your kids or um, conversations that you might want to bring to them to see how they feel about things that they don't really have to deal with because they aren't within that community. That is, uh, you know, generally what people associate with that holiday. And so just the fact that people are coming and they're maybe having their very first uncomfortable experience, that gives me a lot of hope. Um, but it's not something that is going to organically continue to grow. So it gives me a lot of hope that these conversations can continue to happen and that people can honestly understand that they have a lot of weight to make change happen. Um, and the more times you put yourself in a position where you have to think about that, the more you're going to be able to speak to that in the future. And so if you have never felt uncomfortable or you've never felt consciously uncomfortable in any situation, find one to be uncomfortable with it can start with a book it can start with a, a documentary it can continue on with a conversation with somebody that you may maybe have never approached but start it somewhere and then recognize how you feel about that and then keep it going well jossie thank you so much for joining me today thank you for this conversation and and really thank you for everything that you uh do at indeed and i'm sure outside of indeed as well to um to have as much empathy and uh and thoughtfulness and care for others and to be so open about it um it's incredibly powerful i've certainly uh learned a lot from getting to know you and and thank you for asking those tough questions and please keep doing that thanks chris my pleasure Thanks for listening to Here to Help. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and download the podcast to stay up to date with the latest episodes. Until next time.